Hey everybody, just taking a sec to remind you that me and Andy will be recording a live episode of Strong Language and Violent Scenes as part of Cellulite Screams this year. So that's Friday, October the 19th at 3pm at the Showroom Cinema in Sheffield. It'll be free entry and you'll get all the usual stuff. We'll have a guest, we'll be talking about film, got free swag to give away, courtesy of Arrow Video, and also a live Mitch's Pitches. See you there, on with the show. Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 24 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, I make manky films and lead a manky life. And joining us tonight we have got the director of Cellulite Screams Horror Festival, uh, Mr Rob Nebbett. Rob, hello. Hi, how are you doing guys, alright? Very well, thank you Rob, thank you and uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. It was the time, I think. (laughs) Good timing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I would certainly say uh, timely in many ways. The festival is little over a week away, and as is our first live show, which I'm sure people listening will be absolutely sick to the back teeth of hearing about. <laughs> we can get to that a little bit later, but Rob, you have chosen for uh, the film this week, 1976's House of Mortal Sin. Yes, the Pete <laughs> Walker film. Tell us a little bit about your background with the film, how you came across it, and uh, why, why did you choose it today? My first experience of Pete Walker, like many people, was Frightmare. And weirdly, one of the, probably the, the sort of genesis of one of the many inspirational points for of what led us to start a festival even, um, one of the first all-nighters I ever went to um, had Frightmare in the lineup, which was a, it was an all-nighter in Bradford in about 1998 or 99, I think. Um, and it was a, a kind of five-film uh, all nighter, which had preview of the faculty. Um, uh-huh. It had followed straight away by Frightmare. That, that there's a double bill. Um, <laughs> and then uh, after that, the, it was still banned at the time. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then an Argento double bill on 35 mil, a bird with a crystal plumage and tenebrae. <laughs> Eclectic is is probably the word. But it was the first time I saw Frightmare and I'm pretty sure they might have even screened it off of like a VHS. This is how old how long how far we're going back. <laughs> it looked terrible. Um but there was just something about that film and then uh, and the star of the film that really kind of made me think I need to find more of, of this guy's films. And then when Anchor Bay put out the the Pete Walker collection in the coffin shaped box set, um this was one of the f- the first films that I dug into when I uh, when I got that. And I love Walker's kind of anti-establishment. Like he's basically what my grandma would have called a shit stirrer. <laughs> he's all about getting up in people's face and real and trying to push people's buttons. And that's why I, I, I like that in filmmakers. You know, it's a I think it's a really good choice, and it's a film that not a lot of people are going to have heard of, and probably less of them are, are going to have actually seen. That's true. Yeah, I mean, it, it is pretty obscure. I think. Well, what it's made me do is kind of after rewatching it and then kind of looking into some of the sort of some of the points around the film and stuff, 
it's got a Blu-ray release now, which I'm now going to have to buy because it apparently is a massive upgrade from the one that I watched the other night, even. So, and that doesn't look terrible, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. So, Rob, before we start, if you've listened to any episodes before, you'll uh, know what you're signing up for. But, um, like you say, this is obscure. There's a reasonable chance that quite a few people will be listening that haven't seen the film. So, uh, Andy's going to log 30 seconds on the clock, and we're going to count you in, and we're going to ask you to do your best to uh, give us a 30-second synopsis of House of Mortal Sin. Are you ready? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, three, two, one, go. Okay, so um, House of Mortal Sin is um, a Pete Walker film from 1976 um, about the horrors of the Catholic Church. Um, it's It stars uh, Anthony Sharp as a murderous priest um, who deals with his uh, barely suppressed um, sexual urges by offing anybody that uh, he comes across, pretty much. Um, it's uh, it's really as twisted Time. and as gr- oh, <laughs> that that's uh, that for scene set, and I would say that's not bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's really the the key point there, uh, is that Anthony Sharp plays this mad priest uh, and plays it well. He's he's amazing. He's great in this film. Yeah. Oh yeah, without a doubt for me, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially, especially I think as it kind of escalates and you kind of learn more about him in the various different ways that the film goes and the way his character develops, I think that like he sells every facet of that all the way to the bank. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from what I understand, I did, I did not seen him in much, but he was kind of a bit player in the seventies by all accounts. Right. Um, yeah. And the the only thing that I can remember seeing him in is the, is the very end scene of uh, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, um, where he's the 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 kind of minister from the he's from the government who kind of is is doing the the photo opportunity with the now cured Alex. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I don't know how many lead roles he he, he got. Yeah, not many. He also pops up in Barry Lyndon as well. Um, so, oh, okay. So obviously he did a, a fair amount of work with Kubrick, right? But uh, yeah, he, he, I think he absolutely brilliant. I mean, this was a role that was originally put to Peter Cushing, okay? Who <laughs> yeah, who didn't who just didn't want it, <laughs> <laughs> which is fair enough. Uh, apparently, he didn't particularly rate the script. But I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here, and I, I mean, he's not just a sort of throwaway villain. Yeah, there's there is a lot going on. Which is revealed as as the film sort of uh, as the film goes along. Yeah, yeah. I think that the, I think that there's um there's a tendency even now for um villains who have a kind of like one pronounced streak. Like obviously his thing, like you say, are these kind of like barely suppressed sexual urges and things. There's a tendency to play characters like that one dimensionally evil or one dimensionally bad, or write them that way. And I think that there's a lot to be said for the fact that he's. Uh, he is so kind of three-dimensional and so kind of rounded out by the end of the film. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it could be... I mean, it's not to to play down the comical aspects of the film because there are some funny moments in this. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, there is a sort of... There's a definite human quality that he brings to it and, you know, the the, the overall kind of message to it, I guess, ends up being, you know, that parents screw you up and you know and religion is not all it's cracked up to be yeah exactly yeah yeah and like i said all that kind of um all that kind of comes to the fore a little later but it's got a pretty memorable opening scene i think yeah it starts off with one of your favorite things mitch which is a distressed woman excuse me (laughs) (laughs) but no uh yeah we do have a woman who we learn is uh valerie 
um, arriving at um, what's her parents in her house mm-hmm. in kind of a state of some distress. Uh, runs upstairs without like without greeting her parents who are just kind of like sitting watching the news. Um, eventually, they kind of try and get into a room to speak to her when they force the door open, they find that she's thrown herself out the window. Yeah, so, so it starts as it means to go on, really, this film. You know, it's kind of small town family based there's a lot of this in Pete walker stuff where it, it's yeah. it's you know young girls in in trouble basically okay so yeah she in distress throws herself out of the window and the the subtle kind of hint of where this film's gonna go is that you go immediately to a close-up of, of the bible <laughs> <laughs> yeah for your opening credits of course yeah yeah, yeah and then yeah. cannonballing into old english font over the credits but yeah like uh pretty much pretty much pivoting straight into uh what's gonna be kind of one of your main characters almost running over one of your other main characters when you've got uh the priest bernard uh bernard cutler in a car almost knocks over jenny played by the, the beautiful susan penhaligan yeah it, it, that whole sequence where she nearly gets run over is kind of shot like a public information film yeah <laughs> it does have that feel doesn't it it's a little bit shambolic yeah um but you know you've got to get the plot where it's got to go haven't you i suppose exactly and in fairness and it really and it does that at a clip here because the minute that he comes out to uh see that she's okay they hit off and instantly are uh, like just having coffee and just chatting away in the next scene it's economical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For exactly. sure. We, we figure out that they, they kind of know each other, but it's never really touched on how, is it? Do we know how they know each other? He's the, the sister's ex-boyfriend, I think. He's now a man of the cloth. And, and quite a liberal one. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Out. There's a weird moment where they, they're seconds away from introducing themselves to one another, and it just cuts away with a kind of roar of a car. Yeah, it, a lot of the scenes, I think, in, in this film perhaps are a little functional to getting towards the bits that they really want to focus on yeah that, that, that's probably true um I, I wouldn't even necessarily frame that as a criticism but it's brisk certainly um in between it's kind of big moments but yeah so basically she kind of alludes again kind of uh non-specifically to the fact that she's kind of got some problems and he kind of offers a kind of open ear well yeah for people who haven't seen each other in a long time they certainly have a lunch where they overshare to an incredible amount and <laughs> And basically just, they're, they're total downers. Like, it's the most depressing lunch ever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think she's clearly set up to, to take the place of the girl who threw herself out the window in the, at the beginning, before <laughs> yeah. you even know what's going on. You know, she's she's in trouble. You know, it, it leads on to the, the boyfriend, who is archetypal 70s arsehole. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we, can, we can talk about this guy for about three hours. So, after this very brief lunch... Yeah, she heads, she heads back, and I just kind of want to make sure that I've got a grip on the living arrangement. Right, yeah. yeah so, she so does she, she lives with her sister, Vanessa. Yeah. And do they live above the shop where they also work? It certainly seems that way. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. That, like, uh, it took me a minute to piece that together when she first appears. But you're right, Rob, as you say. She gets back there, and we get our first meeting with Jenny's boyfriend, Terry, mm-hmm. who is in the process of moving out. And the film is at pains for you to think that Terry is a dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether this this is another sort of walkerism, if you like, of looking at the this sort of the hangover of the, the late 60s and being kind of all about hippies moving into the 70s when everything isn't so rosy. And it is just, you know, guys going, well, I'm just going to move on. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere else. And she's losing her mind over it. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. She does come across, and it's a shame, she does come across quite sappish and quite a bit of a drip. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I suppose that sort of, I guess that underlines the, the whole dynamic with her and the sister Played by Stephanie Beecham as well. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, um, and and Stephanie Beecham is great in this again. But Terry, when they have this weird breakup here, it's actually quite a chilled out breakup. I don't think I've ever had a breakup that that wasn't just shrouded in acrimony. Um, <laughs> but Terry just plays it cool as fuck. He is wearing, I would say, conservatively twenty neck scarfs. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, he's he's pretty much just like like you say, Rob, rightly. He's moving on. He's moving on. There's plenty more fish in the sea. There's too many fish, in fact, for yeah, Terry. He's breezing out the door. Yeah, and I think that the, when we watched it the other night, the, the first big laugh came from the sister, Vanessa, Vanessa and yeah. Terry, as he leaves. And I, I can't, I'm not sure what she says to him. But it's something like, oh, you, you're, you know, you're going or whatever. I'm paraphrasing, but... And he just tells her to get fucked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's so, it's so bizarre. I think that like that's kind of like your final. This guy's an arsehole, like arrow sign. <laughs> yeah, that's it. If you were on the fence, that was the, <laughs> the final confirmation. She, she doesn't seem taken aback when he tells her to get fucked. Yeah, so she's quite impassive about the whole thing. I'm pretty sure that's not the first time Terry's told her to get fucked. Maybe not. <laughs> um, and again, it's only, and it's actually it's only as we're talking about it back that I'm really appreciating how much this film burns through exposition at the start because it really does. Um. Because kind of before you know it, she's uh, Jenny's head to the church, kind of in what it seems to be an attempt to take Bernard up on his offer of uh, being someone to go talk to and things. So she goes there and effectively just kind of like pesters a couple of a uh, couple of parishioners yeah. to find out <laughs> if uh, Bernard's going to be there and who's taking confession. Well, uh, and, uh, one oh, of the guys that she speaks to is Andrew Sachs, uh, Manuel from Forty Towers. <laughs> that is true, actually. Yeah, that is true. I was. Um, who do, who seemingly doesn't know a where he is, or <laughs> who who the priest is, or where the priest is, and not it's like he's only loosely familiar with what a church is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not the most convincing performance from Sax either. He does feel seem generally quite lost. Yeah, well, he's because he's in um, Frightmare as well. He's the character that gets murdered at the beginning. I oh think. yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I guess it was weirdly that. Manuel from Faulty Towers is one of Pete Walker's regulars. <laughs> that is weird. <laughs> Far more believable as a Spanish man than as an English man. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so being no further on, she heads for the confessional booth and uh, we get our first meeting with Father Meldrum, the kind of antagonist of the beast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Father Meldrum coming out the gate hot with the, the creepy behaviour. Yeah, well, to be fair, I think he shows his cards quite early on. Totally agree. What, you know, he, he, there's no mess. There's no messing around. He's 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 all about. Tell me about these uh, these uh, these sexual matters that you're referring to, <laughs> that, that you vaguely alluded to. Let's go into that yeah. in more detail. Uh, I just yeah, like first, say... first of all, oh, oh, and by the way, nice to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I remember that because like because she talks about the fact that he's leaving, and she talks about how. He's, he seems like he's kind of a player and doesn't really make any attempt to kind of hide the fact that he's a womanizer mm-hmm. and stuff like that. All of this kind of stuff and about how that makes her feel and stuff. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that the important thing is that we focus on these intimate encounters that you mentioned <laughs> back there. There's, um, a, there's, the, a, there's in, a lot in this scene, by the way, that makes me very uncomfortable. I don't like churches. I find them unsettling and I don't like the word intercourse. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I found this scene... 
pretty hard work. Um, I, I, I think I like Rob. You're quite right. I mean, like, like they sell sketchy guy right out of the gate here. I think that the uh, individually the line that I think is the creepiest here is when he's kind of like leaning on her to give a little bit more away about this kind of thing, uh-huh. and she kind of pushes back a little bit, and he just says, "I want you to tell me." Yeah, yeah, which is like yeah, weirdly like... blunt, really abrupt, really weirdly coercive. Because I remember just thinking, I was like, "Oh." Like, what was it about that that sat so wrongly with me? It was just really, really kind of like a really disturbing scene, but a really effective introduction to the character. Yeah, I mean, the thing with with this film, and it really shows Walker's um, as a director his his status as as apparently a lapsed Catholic, mm-hmm. because this, that particular bit was apparently based on when he was at either boarding school or or and and the the priest would basically have the confessional with with girls from the local girls school and they would <laughs> apparently go and hide behind the confession box and just listen to what was being talked about oh god <laughs> jesus which is uh, which is kind of sinister in itself but i mean they were, you know not not that it's excusable necessarily but they they were kids themselves but this whole dynamic of an old priest kind of going and tell me more about that bit that that's apparently where he comes from which is pretty grim <laughs> I think that um, I think that the fact that this is made by a lapsed Catholic Catholic explains a lot. Yeah, mm, about sure. kind of a central message in the way a lot of things are depicted. Definitely. Um, also, yeah. in this scene, he manages to coerce her into telling him that she's had an abortion. Yeah, and this is important, obviously. Yeah, which plays pretty heavily into what's happening later. Obviously, I mean, she must have some religion in her life somewhere because this plays such a huge part in the story and the impact is potentially huge on her as a person. Yeah, I mean, to a point, I think it, it it's sort of a means to an end and her kind of... I, th- I guess that it's it's to do with it being of the time as well. Yeah, um, we yeah. Because that kind of era, you know, priests didn't do bad things, <laughs> apparently. Well, they did, but... um you know that in the in the you know in the wider public you know they were kind of beyond reproach you know yeah so i guess the idea is that you can always you could always talk to a priest i actually doing some kind of looking around this this particular film and re-watching some kind of interviews with with pete walker one of one of my favorites is apparently a uh because obviously in the 70s you you've got the the twin pillars of the exorcist and the omen in terms of overtly religious themed big horror films and then this someone like going i think this is another sort of side to it <laughs> but it's difficult i guess it's sort of like the notion of a priest being a bad character it is quite subversive i suppose at the time yeah Oh, very, very much so. Definitely, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's it's funny because as the kind of story plays out, despite everything that Jenny says, at no point does anyone believe her. At no point does anyone, for a second, look into Father Meldrum or any of these allegations against him. So, I mean, you're quite right. He is completely above reproach. Yeah, and you know the the reaction at the time because they were they were clearly you know the the filmmakers they were clearly going for right let's really shock and let's really get this the the tabloid response to, to you know for for publicity obviously and it didn't come and I can only think that possibly that the church was going it's way worse than you think. Do you know what I found quite endearing in this film? Just veering away. Uh, seeing things from now, like brands, recognisable brands, like Waitrose and Sun Blessed Bread. Uh-huh. But in the 70s, 
<laughs> yeah. I find that quite charming. It's a really nice little snapshot of what was probably a very, very grim time. <laughs> not least not least down to the plot as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. Exactly. So um, it's that it's at this point that Father Meldrum is taken to just following Jenny everywhere, wearing a clo- like completely dressed in a cloak. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, also uh, and also uh, gloves borrowed straight from a Jello as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. While this is going on, uh, Bernard swings by the shop slash house mm-hmm. and is basically offered a place to live uh, by Vanessa. But uh, yeah, Jenny on her way home, she ends up going for a drink with Bob, who we didn't mention. He asked her out for a drink right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, Bob. Bob's. I feel sorry for Bob at every single turn. Yeah, very much an innocent victim in the imaginations of the plot of this film, I think, old Bob. (laughs) Bob does nothing wrong except, rightly so, fancy Jenny because she is beautiful. And he is severely friend-zoned from minute one. And and his attempts to be a good friend to her and kind of be there for her, I I guess, and ultimately to move out of the friend zone, he... uh, Finds himself at the mercy of Father Meldrum, and we know Father Mel- Meldrum shows no mercy. Yeah, he he really doesn't. You know, his his entire approach of it's quite clear later on. But what what it what it leads to is him recording the confessions in order to blackmail young girls. Of course, yeah, for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but then also, you know, have this weird ideal that that he's the one for them, but in some weird repressed way and that any of the, these other men are, are going to kind of feel his wrath. Yeah, his end game's never really clear, is it? Not really. I think there is a point that later on when, uh, which I think sums it up, which we'll talk about later when we get to it, but um, of, of what his, I guess what his end game is and what his, his whole viewpoint is really. But yeah, he, he gets obsessed with, ah, there is a reason why I remembered why. Um, <laughs> the the fact that he's obsessing over these young girls who all, who look similar as well, oh, yeah, um, yeah. which which kind of plays out later on. Yeah, yeah, I guess it does. Now you say it. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about um, the scene where Bob gets attacked in the house. So obviously he takes Jenny home. They go in, <laughs> and Jenny goes out again to buy cigarettes. So Bob's kind of just sitting listening to some vinyls. Yeah, flat. sure, sure. And the person, again, are like unidentified at this point, theoretically, but obviously it's Father Meldrum comes in. And I think it's really funny because he doesn't like sneak up on Bob at all. He like scratches the record <laughs> to snap him out of it. And Bob gets up and like considering a caped and gloved intruder has come in, could definitely be doing with more of a shoot first, ask questions later approach to dispatching intruders. <laughs> Because he's like advancing on him in a very menacing way, and he's like, "Who are you? How did you get in here?" And asks him like 101 questions. But I've got written down in my notes that um, Meldrum physically attacks Bob and hits him a couple of times, and Bob's not in the least bit bothered by it. Oh, he's pacifistic to the hilt. He takes it very well. He's still like, "Why? Why are you? Why are you doing this?" <laughs> yeah. Rather than just Aah! just attack, like grabbing him round the waist and wrestling him on the ground. Yeah, no, like he, like he's very much like he's like non-violent resistance to the last, which I think is admirable, but also useless. I think it might also speak to why he's in the friend zone. He's, me. he's a bit of a wet blanket, but wet blanket who ends up with boiling water all over his face. <laughs> yeah, well, like all of the deaths in this film are slightly more grotesque and elaborate than they probably would be given what's what's actually making it happen so yeah it's, it's the coffee pot isn't it with this first one yeah yeah so yeah. It, yeah 
<laughs> it's the coffee in the face, which basically makes his face explode. <laughs> Yeah, um, that does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we. Uh, yeah, it's basically like a kettle full of hydrochloric acid on the yeah, stove. But yeah, like like you say, I think that you're right. This a lot of the uh, a lot of the wounds and kind of deaths and stuff are kind of characterized in terms of how gory they are. And it's also worth mentioning at this point that um, Father Meldrum believes Bob to be Terry to be the boyfriend. Yeah, that's that's true. Actually, yeah. Um, so, which I guess shows his complete sort of blind approach to anyone that is associated because he yeah, i think he does reference the fact that he's well obviously when he's when he's killed two people rather than were one <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah he kind of references it later on and it, again as, as you mentioned it's well, you know some pretty good exposition where he basically describes everything he's just done yeah, I and um and yeah, like actually, you're right. Explicitly references the fact that there was this kind of unfortunate case of mistaken identity, um, where he basically kind of uh, maimed and disfigured the wrong guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, which yeah, which ties back into the fact that Bob is an extreme hard luck character in every respect. Yeah. For, yeah, throughout, like the, <laughs> it just keeps getting worse for him. It really, really, really does. I mean, it's bad enough when the love of your life completely doesn't want anything to do with you in a in a kind of sexual capacity, but uh, to then have your face melted off and for the and or your face explode. Sorry, Rob. Um, <laughs> he doesn't have a good couple of days. In fact, I, I would argue that the return of Jenny is one of the worst things that could happen to this guy. I think that's that's fair. You know, he uh, he didn't need any of that. <laughs> um, so, like, see, when Jenny comes back and the attack's kind of been and gone at this point. Yeah. Um, she comes in, finds Bob uh, in that condition, goes upstairs, sees the movement in the other room, sees, like, kind of it's very explicitly shown in extreme close-up, the cross. Yeah. She takes off running, meets uh, Bernard and Vanessa coming back. So, obviously, this is all kind of done in a way that's kind of like very feverish, very hysterical. Everybody calms down almost immediately after that. And very little was made of the fact that there was actually somebody in the house. <laughs> like that, like it's like that's not that's not really discussed or picked apart in any way after that. That happens quite a lot throughout, actually. That people don't really care too much about potential intruders. Yeah, I, th- I think certainly within the, this the, the the post face melt scene, um, <laughs> the fact that everyone's really not bothered. I think they would probably try and explain it away, but it's later on. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's calmed down. Yeah, um, and they make a big point of going. Oh well, we better throw this coffee pot away, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> like, there's absolutely no question about what's happened. Uh, uh, Vanessa's just like, it's quite clear what happened. The coffee pot exploded. Hang on, look, the guy's still alive. Yeah, but also, yeah, she picks up this like kind of intact coffee pot. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. Um, but the, see, I think the morning after is hilarious, just purely because, like, um, you know, because this is what I'm assuming is Bernard's first night in his new like living situation. Uh huh. And everyone comes down in the morning and he's just kind of shirtlessly making breakfast. Two things about that that, that particular scene. Uh, the first one is they've clearly gone, now how do we show just how liberal a priest this guy is? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, that, and that's how. Um, and also, who makes a fry-up with no top on? I know! Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a fat spatter accident waiting to happen, for sure. <laughs> but what I want to say about topless Bernard and it troubled me no end it troubles me now as I'm thinking about it that man has the most hairless chest and stomach I have ever 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 seen outside a baby <laughs> it's entirely entirely hairless 
and I, th- I find I think I think that's repulsive. Repulsive. <laughs> to be fair, he is cooking fried food, so maybe that's why. Maybe, yeah. maybe they've been burnt off. It's been, been scalded yeah. off. Of scalded away, melted away. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, honestly, watch it back. It's it's obscene how bald his chest but, is. I, I I genuinely like. I I actually I actually I kind of I, I laughed out loud when they when the first thing he saw in the kitchen was him just kind of standing there, shirtless, kind of just smoking. Yeah, just blasting <laughs> as you like, just frying up a couple of eggs. Smoking, frying eggs. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, important character introduction, Claxon. Jenny returns to the church after this to uh, go see Father Meldrum again. Mm-hmm. And we meet who we will come to learn is uh, Miss Brabazon. <laughs> who, as a character introduction with no background, looks mental. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this is the, the main Pete Walker regular, which is Sheila Keith. Yeah. Who's for my money not as good in this, but she because I think she's kind of underused a little bit in this. That's probably um, true. But in certainly in in Frightmare, she absolutely steals it, and House of Whipcord as well. To be fair, but yeah, she she's quite something in this film. Even when she gets her moment, it's a good one. <laughs> she has a real uh, kind of Rosa Klebb Bond villain Nazi type look, very severe, and for some reason, which we'll come to find later. Uh, she has glasses with one lens blacked out. Yeah, um, which just adds to the overall look of her. Um, yeah, if, I mean, if if you have that as a as a thing, the the thing that's revealed later, I suppose there are worse ways to hide it. I suppose, but it's yeah, it's not. It, it's a pretty pretty menacing look, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I, I, it's it's really weird looking. I've never seen anything like it before. But you're right. I think that like it's it's in service of it being of like I. I think that it's in service of her introduction being just a generally unsettling visual, and it totally works. She's kind of the housekeeper in at this point, isn't it? Yeah. And more is revealed later on the the kind of history of it, but she, I, it, I would watch anything with this woman in, and and you know, the, all basically anything that she is in is worth a look for me. Kind of a market quality kind of thing. Mm, absolutely yeah so she takes jenny through to see uh father meldrum and you get kind of more of this kind of just like this kind of subtle-ish kind of reminder of kind of what his agenda is or what you know like what his leanings are sure yeah. because like as she's coming in kind of on their way out are this kind of what you assume is a kind of young couple who are both kind of teary and kind of have the feeling that they've just kind of been like scalded or scolded just say or shamed for something maybe also possibly scolded, scolded. i think you might yeah. be right the first time <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, he does have priors, to be fair. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he has, so he has Jenny's keys. That's why she's there, essentially. All of his kind of behaviour is sort of a little bit peculiar, like <laughs> in terms of his motivations, and it is just to get to her, ultimately, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but he doesn't have her keys because he pulls her keys up, they're attached on a string to the back of the door, and he pulls them up and out the door Oh yeah, yeah to yeah, access right, the right. house. So yeah. he's, he's obviously just lying to her. He's maybe picked them up so he could because he gets at he, he accesses the house again later so he's obviously just kept the keys they dial up his agenda a lot here in a way that i think is really good like uh when you know when he's kind of giving it all the whole are you afraid of a are you afraid of a man who defiled you and all this calling back in all yeah. the stuff from the confessional there uh, there's a line that i went to the trouble of writing down because i thought it was really funny is uh let me show you the way to true happiness and her response is i can't, I can't spare the time <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I paused to write down because I thought it was really funny. And it's at that point that you find out in super creepy fashion that he's recorded her abortion confession. Yeah, and he's now using it as a kind of blackmail device. He's threatening to release the fact that she's had the abortion and uh, presumably bring her life crashing down around her ears. 
Yeah, I think I think his whole kind of approach seems to be just to torment young women and girls until they throw themselves out of windows. I mean, that yeah, seems to be his, his whole approach. Like at this point, yeah, I think so. But yes, so uh, but Jenny, fair play to her. She kind of gets out of dodge when this gets too uncomfortable. She grabs her keys, takes off, and uh, finds solace in the most unlikely of characters, Terry, who has made. Uh, fleeting return and she's very happy about that as yeah, well yeah, yeah the, the, uh, the, it's so uh, I find that the happiness with which she engulfs Terry here to be quite unsettling as well they, they do reconcile absolutely instantly they also have I know we've had a lot of terrible kisses on this show so far Mitch <laughs> not me and you personally <laughs> uh, <laughs> our kisses are n- nothing they're never nothing there's, if not beautiful there's a reason why there's not a video element to this <laughs> But uh, th- those two characters share what is comfortably one of the most disgusting kisses I've seen throughout the duration of us doing this show so far. And Terry's got a new neck scarf. Well, he just took, maybe he just took one off, and it, that, that, was is, <laughs> that is possible. But she basically chooses to divulge all this information to Terry, uh, who, being the the big swinging dick that he is, decides he's going to head off and confront Father Meldrum. And again, what is a misguided manoeuvre? This is the big, uh, the next big death by Catholic Church implement, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. See, see, before that happens, I want to touch on something very quickly. Um, there's a scene here between Bernard and Father Meldrum, but yeah. like where they're having the discussion about celibacy and how Bernard's talking about how he kind of feels like celibacy is, it's not like an outdated notion, but it's uh-huh. kind of feeling like its significance isn't what it once was and stuff like that. Anthony Sharp is phenomenal here i think he is so cutting and so bitchy and he is absolutely dismissive of everything that cutler is saying but this scene actually it's interesting looking at it with a kind of benefit of 40 something years because the catholic church i suppose has gone through this kind of renaissance just now but it's trying to be more relevant and trying to kind of move with the times and that's actually that's more or less a line that's kind of mentioned in the film at this point is that they should be moving with the times they should be growing and yeah, I think it's certainly quite salient. Definitely. I, th- I think, you know, there's a lot in this that hasn't really changed an awful lot. Yeah. And that, you know, it, it's uh, it's just as relevant. It's weird. It, it is kind of weird to see something of this era that, that has, I mean, it, it's it's dated in, in a lot of ways, but a lot of the, the kind of the message, it's all stuff that we're still dealing with. So Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that actually saying that as well, like you said, Robert, like before this, or that, like around this time, uh, religious characters and religious figures in film hadn't really been portrayed this way that much. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of it's interesting. It's kind of prophetic and kind of prescient that this that this did this in a way that hadn't been done at the time, but feels so timely now. Like I think it's like without context, it's kind of it's easy to miss how impressive that is. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like we were saying before the the idea of religious leaders and 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 priests being the kind of the ultimate hero, if you like, and you know the the uh, the exorcist being the, the the primary example of of that. But I heard a, a quote from John Landis relating to the exorcist, where he said he was saying, and I'm kind of paraphrasing this, but he was saying if you've got a problem with your kid. Don't send him into a room alone with two priests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that's the last thing you should do. But at the time, obviously, it's it was very much help me, Father. It's that kind of vibe, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I think it's really interesting. It was like, and I, it's like I say, I think it's kind of easy to understate that that's probably like a pretty subversive thing I've done. 
Um, so before Terry and uh, Meldrum have their kind of confrontation, we do have um, the reappearance of uh, the mother of Valerie from the pre-credits. Yeah. Um, she reappears. I didn't expect this. I don't know why not. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what I didn't. I don't know what I expected to do with the opening scene. But um, when she appears and kind of leans on Meldrum in that way, and he kind of reveals that or claims that Valerie, before she killed herself, was like pregnant and scared, didn't want to tell her dad and stuff like that. This is a really kind of horrible... Either he's making it up, or it's a really horrible abuse of trust. An interesting moment for the character again. I think that's what what we were saying. He's, he's such a kind of complex character. He's so self-obsessed <laughs> and so kind of absorbed by the fact that he's a priest, but he has these kind of base desires as well and and but can't do anything about it and it's 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 basically a lifetime of of suppression and what that does to a person it's it's yeah. and it's all played out really subtly and really kind of intricately with his performance as well yeah i i think the, the way that it kind of uh the way it kind of feeds you that is really really well done all the way through um and then yeah straight off this kind of straight into um like so t- uh, Terry and Meldrum's confrontation and more good performance stuff here this time from Stuart Bevan as Terry who I think like he's kind of appeared so fleetingly up to this point that you don't really get a read on what it's like performance wise I think during this exchange really good I've got no problem with any of it but again it's all about Meldrum he's amazing here again like he pulls off a bat- one of those turn your back Batman invisible tricks. Yeah. Then Terry's kind of standing, looking for him in the darkness of the church, and smells incense before Meldrum appears behind him and bashes his head in with a thurible. Yeah, Rob, one of the uh, more graphic and one of the harsher deaths in here, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not religious at all, but is it called a censor? The thing that he smashes him in the face with is that, uh, is that what it's called? Yeah, or a or a thurible. Okay. okay. Again, really graphic and brutal smashing in the face but not killing him either i think that's the, the thing because that leads on to the next bit which is even arguably even more grim because earlier on i think that there's arguably a throwaway line about a grave that's been dug and the, just... the body that was meant to go in the grave is being interred in the family crypt yeah the, you're right the, yeah the robinson funeral or something. that's right yeah <laughs> chekhov's empty grave <laughs> yeah so so conveniently leaving a big hole <laughs> to throw a still living man into <laughs> yeah that's that, that is really heavy going stuff actually that's horrible because yeah ultimately yeah, he does obviously he does bury him in the graveyard and uh well this is going on and again see when i was watching this for the like I, obviously like i said i saw this for the first time right uh, the night before we did this and to begin with i find everyone's kind of unwillingness to give what jenny's saying any kind of real airtime mm-hmm. i find that kind of frustrating but i kind of now understand the way we're talking about the way people put stock in what priests say yeah and the sanctity of priesthood and things like that it makes more sense and yeah vanessa and bernard are basically having a discussion about the fact that jenny's behavior is so erratic yeah i think also it's it's, it's as much at this point it's as much about like as you say how much stuff people put in what the the sort of the position of a priest but how little they also listen to young girls as well absolutely yeah and young yeah. women you know and that's very contemporary as a thing as well you know absolutely that's uh, that i think that's one of the things about it that i kind of felt the most kind of like current um but yeah she basically wants to force meldrum to return the tape bernard says that he's going to deal with it on his own and straight off the back of this i i wasn't ready for what you go on to learn about meldrum's character here and I think that this is where you start to really get an understanding of the kind of complexities. Because we cut straight back to him and he gives Miss Brabazon this kind of hard time for playing this specific record. 
Right. And then brings food to his mother, who I don't think has even been mentioned up to this point. I could be wrong, but I don't think that she's been mentioned. And you basically see that he looks after his kind of infirm mother. I think there's a, they do a really cool thing here, which is when he came in and he's like addressing his mother. And he does that for what feels like a really long time. You get this one long shot of him kind of wandering over, stopping the music, kind of talking aloud about how it's out of order that she did that. And that's kind of thing. And it takes ages, even in that scene, before you actually see the mother. It's like a really long reveal uh, before you get a look at her and you realise what her condition is. Yeah, I mean, th- this this whole kind of introduction of the mother character is really effective because, y- you know, the, the more you, the, and the more it reveals as you go along. It adds a, a whole new kind of layer to it then. Oof, definitely. And... Where I, I think we also learned that uh, Miss Brabazon's kind of really super abusive to the mum. Uh, that's alluded to, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's never it's never really shown, but certainly behind closed doors, she's saying some pretty awful stuff to her. Yeah, it's obviously what the, what you learn later on as the whole that whole dynamic and that whole situation. Yeah, kind of understandable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and but i mean like um at this point and this is actually something that came up when we did uh when we talked about the ninth configuration a few weeks back uh but one thing that i tend to find really unsettling and really difficult to watch is kind of vulnerable people of any kind being kind of harassed yeah or bullied and things that really really gets under my skin uh so i find a lot of the stuff with uh miss brabazon and uh father meldrum's mother to be extremely difficult to watch yeah it's it's um I suppose it's the the lack of hope that runs throughout this film, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. That that yeah. That's it's really strong in the, in that particular that particular bit for sure. I, I think also just like I, there's something kind of a uh, this kind of vulnerability that you see to Meldrum here when he's kind of you know when he takes the the record off kind of thing and he's like oh this is our music isn't it mother and stuff like that. There's something kind of really interestingly kind of sheltered and naive about him in that moment. <laughs> that's just another thing that you hadn't seen before then. There is a real regression in him quite a lot when he speaks to his mum. I totally agree. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, that, that whole relationship, and especially that you're getting all of that from him as well. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. Because she she is is very much, you know, she, she doesn't say a word she's, and because she's, she's in this really vulnerable state. And so much of that is played out through his performance and through what he reveals in those those initial kind of scenes between the two of them. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating to see how your view of him kind of changes because, you know, it's not long since you've seen him bury a man alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and be, you know, scolding people's faces and stuff. But it's it's really interesting how, how that performance is so kind of key to it. But while, while the mum is kind of in this really infirm state, she has absolute awareness of who her son is and what her son is. And it's etched on her face the whole time. Yeah, that's true. And also the you know the fact of them having that that dynamic as a household. Yeah. This completely toxic environment for for everyone concerned. This whole unit that's that's completely messed up beyond anything you could imagine, really. Yeah, on so um, many levels. That's so true. I just want to touch on something else that's pretty inappropriate if you want to talk about a toxic household environment. <laughs> It's the sleeping arrangements between Vanessa and Jenny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, maybe it's the sleeping arrangements in general. Uh, we learned that Terry had lived there for two years previously. Um, which kind of ma- which kind of makes how blase they both are about them breaking up at the start, even stranger. <laughs> yeah. And uh, obviously now Cutler's living there, but certainly Vanessa and Jenny share a bed. So the sisters they share a bed. 
but fully naked. That's not right. Yeah. That's not appropriate. I suppose you you have you've got that that kind of two sides of the coin. You've got the two households. You've got the two nude sisters and a fairly liberal priest, and then you've got <laughs> a murderous priest and his housekeeper and his infirm mother. Everybody's all kinds of wrong, really. <laughs> yeah. In the... <laughs> It's so true though. I consider that yeah, your two central houses are like not opposite opposites of each other, but like very different ends of a spectrum. Because yeah, you actually see them sleeping together earlier on, and I remember thinking, oh, that's weird. Their sisters weird they're sleeping together. And then the second time you see it, she hops up out of bed, belly ball naked, and, I, and naked. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> was that just a bit much for you? Was it? The line was crossed. Yeah. See, as we're going through this kind of scene by scene, I was realizing how many of these scenes play out as confrontations. Like, very little in the way of incidentals. The incidentals are kind of blown by, and they're all built into what is most often kind of one-on-one confrontations. And in this instance, it's uh, Bernard uh, kind of confronting Meldrum, trying to get the abortion tape. Again, her credibility is attacked straight from the off by him. Yeah. He kind of, he describes her as a disturbed girl, kind of reframes the recording of the abortion confession as kind of something that he ordinarily does. He plays a tape about it, but it's not the right one. It's kind of just him talking about it afterwards and things like that. Reframes the whole thing as standard practice, and he kind of just, in the short term, kind of makes it go away. Yeah, he's a wily old fox. He is. You know, well, we know, obviously, that it was a, that the tape was real, but that, yeah, it's like sometimes, like in this instance, he can be bothered to cover his tracks, and then other times he just can't be asked. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, which actually, straight after this, you just tying into that a little bit, Bernard's on his way away and he meets the gravedigger again, um, who kind of talks about the fact that the funeral was postponed and then kind of motions towards where we know that um, Terry, Terry, Terry is buried. And uh, But the gravedigger sagely points out that you can't put in more dirt than you remove. That's right, yeah. Which, again, when you're talking about covering your tracks, that's a fairly week one, day one error. <laughs> Even even with that as a something of a signpost, Bernard doesn't really. He's maybe it's like maybe maybe I'll look into that later. That's <laughs> true. It's like hey, no time to look into that now. <laughs> but he's in the middle of a bit of an existential crisis of his own because he uh, has feelings both of the heart and of the crotch for Vanessa. <laughs> That's very true. He wants to give her the full. Bare chest, really bare chest. Oh god, it's <laughs> oh. incredibly. That's off. a horrific way to describe that. Incredibly off-putting. Um, um, <laughs> he's got a che- his, his body kind of looks like a cartoon pig. <laughs> 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 Fucking hell! <laughs> oh man. Um, more weirdness between Meldrum and Jenny next. Yeah. Oh god. Because yeah, she, she visits a heavily maimed uh, Bob. Poor fucking Bob again, man. <laughs> yeah, like cartoonishly face bandaged, um, <laughs> like Dark Man. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, while that like she goes to visit him, and while that exchange is going on, um, she kind of she knows enough, she gets enough out of that exchange with uh, Bob to know that he's kind of on her side and he knows things. <laughs> uh, he, like he knows a little bit more of the story. But then um, an unrepentant Meldrum appears and um, kind of advances on her, but stops when a nurse comes in. And um, it's kind of a, it was a mistaken kind of first attack in a public forum kind of thing from him. I see after this, after this exchange, when she's in a state of kind of some distress, and a do- <laughs> a do- I say it all the time, don't I? Um, a do- and a doctor's given her a sedative. Obviously. Yeah. Uh, she's hysterical. 
exactly. <laughs> but like the doctor from there, the one that gave that gives her the sedative, is taking her home. Obviously aware of the fact that she is sedated because he was the one that gave it to her. And uh, he's like, "Oh, where's your house?" And she's like, "Oh, it's okay. I can walk the rest of the way." And he's like, "Yeah, all right." <laughs> Beauty of care was somewhat different in 1976. This, again, like a recurring theme on this podcast, medical negligence. (laughs) He strikes me as creepy in an almost parallel way to Father Meldrum. Go on. But it just doesn't get long enough to to seed and grow. But I don't trust him either. Maybe that could have been another Walker target for authority figures that really shouldn't be trusted. (laughs) Never trust a doctor. No, that's it. <laughs> Famously untrustworthy. <laughs> um, uh, meanwhile, you, you get kind of the first look at kind of this, or the kind of romantic subplot between uh, Bernard and Vanessa gets a little bit teased out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, as well, just kind of, just while that's going on. Well, he gives into his uh, more uh, base desires. Yeah, that I think that's the the one glimmer of hope in this film, really. Yeah. Um, is that that might come together for them and, you know, it, it might all be okay. But no. <laughs> <Five chance. laughs> Ultimately, no. Um, we get another visit from Valerie's mom at this point as well. She um, she runs into Jenny in the street when she's walking home. Valerie was in a similar situation. Kind of, we get back to more of the kind of abuse of power stuff again. It's kind of super timely, and you get more after this as well of uh, Bernard and Vanessa being still at this point pretty skeptical of Jenny's side of the story. <laughs> they're always skeptical yeah, until like, they're absolutely confronted with the truth in the most blatant and unavoidable fashion. <laughs> <laughs> At which point they're usually killed in some Catholic way. And, and no more scene is that more true than uh, the death of Valerie's mum, which is coming up round about now. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. a really risky manoeuvre from, uh, from Father Meldrum here. This could have gone awry. Communion. He's doing his priestly duties, he's handing out communion, uh, everyone's taking taking their Eucharist wafer and having their wee sip of wine. There's a moment of uh, cold, icy stillness between Valerie's mum. Does Valerie's mum have a name? Is she just Valerie's mum? I don't remember we'll, the name We'll one. go with Valerie's mum. And uh, yeah, she um, is given her, her wafer and it is presumably highly toxic as it renders her dead. It seems that way, yeah. I mean, one thing I'd like to mention at this point is the when this film was released in the States, it had a different title, which was The Confessional. The Confessional, yeah. yeah. But there was another title, apparently, according to the the writer David McGillivray. What he wanted to call it, which was shot down by Pete Walker, was Mass Murder. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which, that gets my vote, I'm afraid. Okay, oh, my God. Send yeah. the other entries home. We have a winner. <laughs> I mean, House of Mortal Sin's a pretty pretty strong title. I think House of Mortal um, Sin's a great name. Yeah. And, and very yeah. fitting, I'm guessing, amongst Pete Walker's oeuvre. I, th- I think that Mass Murder, if you think about the way they would have marketed that, if you could, I, I think that it probably would have made it look way sillier than it is. Uh, it probably would have been a little bit of a misdirection. Yeah, this this if <laughs> of, of all films, this is one that doesn't deserve a pun title. <laughs> <laughs> wow, actually, yeah. Um, around this time, as though, yeah, like I said, we lose, we lose Valerie's mum at this point. You also get, just kind of as an incidental, uh, Miss Brabazon, again, just more kind of fairly horrible stuff with her and uh, Father Meldrum's mother. Yeah. Um, again, like, I, I don't want to dwell on that too long. It's kind of, it's, it's there to kind of see where that story is going. Um, and it does it well. It I does, think. it does do it really effectively. It's fucking horrible to watch, which again is the point. Just, just this entire thing. Like, I find that entire strand of it really disquieting. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's 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 horrible. Yeah, Sorry, it really is. 
No, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a kind of a little bit of this film kind of getting where it needs to go. Yeah, yeah. Jenny's kind of out of the story at this point. She is asleep for the rest of the film. Sedated until the yeah. end, basically. Yeah. Until like, the, la- the second to last frame. Yeah, and like I say, I think that like um, a lot of what happens now is kind of moving the pieces around to get the film to where it needs to be, get everything in place for kind of the final standoff. And it takes, um, before kind of Jenny's arguments are given any kind of real credence, it takes Meldrum calling Vanessa and playing the recording down the phone. Does he mistake her though? For... Yeah, he does. He yeah, thinks he it's mistakes Jenny. Her for Jenny. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be like kind of an intimidation tactic, tactic and he completely <laughs> blows his cover. He's fucking shit at this. Like, <laughs> he doesn't do any research beforehand, really. Like he did the same thing with Bob. Like this is the, the like this this is way past not taking the trouble to cover your tracks. This is just uh, like an extremely reckless maneuver. <laughs> He's kind of on, on a path to destruction at this point, really. He doesn't he doesn't care, which kind of makes sense when you kind of see what why it's all happening and what what's actual motivations are, I guess. Because it's it's him being completely unhinged because of it all. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like, yeah. I, th- I think it's um, it's not out of step with something that somebody in his frame of mind might do at all. I don't think. Also, around this time, another kind of another piece, kind of for the ending, but a really nice scene. I think is when you're getting um, word that Bernard's kind of planning to uh, renounce is kind of priesthood oh shit yeah and he has and because it is it is important and like i say i think it's another scene that's really nicely done because he's talking to another um another priest melvin johns yeah yeah, yeah melvin um, johns who uh, famously the old dark house day of the night day of the triffids i really like this exchange a lot i think that i really love the line because he's talking about whether or not he should stay and I think you kind of assume that they're going to try and get him to stay and obviously he goes the other way. And quite, quite far the other way. Another, like, I've, I've, I wrote down a few lines that I liked in this film, but one of them was, he said, um, if you stayed on, you'd be a hypocrite and we have enough of them as it is. <laughs> well, I think I think even the, the simple fact of sort of just below the surface, the underlying thing of the only way you can redeem yourself is to leave the church is the, is the, the you know, the message here, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's true. Jesus. But off the back of this call and kind of Meldrum kind of blowing it a little bit, <laughs> that's the driver for Vanessa to head over and kind of retrieve the, t- retrieve the abortion date, uh, the abortion confession tape yeah. for herself. Also, as it so happens, Bernard's in the presbytery writing his resignation letter at that point as well. So everyone's kind of in place for what's going to be your kind of endgame. And it's a great one. I've spoken, I spoke to you about this a little bit earlier, but um, where this goes in the last kind of 20 minutes or so is unbelievable, I think. Yeah, it's it's it go it doesn't do what you think it's gonna. <laughs> that's, that's a way of putting it, yeah. But yeah, it also has one of my favourite elements. But I don't think it's meant to be funny, but it's very funny. Um, but <laughs> we'll on. get we'll get we'll get to it. <laughs> um, see, uh, you said Vanessa effectively breaks in, yeah. don't she? Like, um, mm-hmm. and uh, she's kind of creeping around trying to find it. She happens again on um Meldrum's mother. She writes a note that says, "Help, my son is mad." <laughs> that's my favorite bit <laughs> <laughs> written extremely legibly it's quite shaky the the note is it was my one of my favorite things is like oh what could this say oh help me my son is mad yeah it's, <laughs> it's absolutely on the nose isn't it like it's, yeah. it's obviously supposed to be the kind of like this kind of culmination of this long building kind of distress but it is kind of funny it's great that she wrote that because she really doesn't seem to have a lot of control of her, her body. No, yeah, all, all, all pens. No, 
true. Very true, Rob. Very true. Yeah. And it's taken this long for Bernard to think that the grave is worth exhuming. Which he does in the rain at night in his shop. Super effective moment where he actually where he actually find Terry. Terry looks fucking revolting when they find the body. <laughs> <laughs> He hasn't fared well in his shallow grave. No, he really hasn't. No, I was I was going to say the years have not been kind, but I suppose the what day and a half has not been kind. <laughs> I think that soil's got a high pH content. <laughs> um. but yeah, but we lose Vanessa at this point during the kind of confrontation in the room because uh, Meldrum comes in when into like the room with Vanessa and her, his mother. So he snaps initially at his mother for her kind of deception or her deceit or her betrayal. disloyalty. I think betrayal, thank betrayal, you. Yeah. Betrayal, yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, strangles Vanessa. Um, he does call her a Judas. She do- he does, yeah. yeah. Uh, and at this point, like we're hitting you thick and fast with deaths, revelations and so on. Miss Brabazon appears and in what is still framed as being this kind of like what appears to be kind of mo- motiveless or self-interested cruelty towards his mother. She's like, oh, she's shocked she'll never make it through this. Administer the last rites. Oh, hang on. You forgot to mention that the chokes Vanessa till blood comes out her eyes. <laughs> it's the last Catholic-themed death, isn't it? Because it's the rosary beads this, this time. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It does bear mentioning, you're right. It's like, yeah, it's, it's the last and potentially the most on the nose of the uh, religious iconography in the death. Sorry, I don't want to do an attraction. Blood comes out of her mouth, not her eyes. That would have been... That, although that would have been funny too. Yeah. But yeah, at this point, kind of like... Uh, yeah, Brabazon basically suggests administering the last rites. Yeah, that's, so, a really, that's really horrible as well. That is horrible. Like that... And when they're kind of prepping her for it yeah, and stuff like that. Because the, mum, the mum's still alive for that. She's she's privy to that and, and unable to do anything about it. That's really horrible. And then she, she sits there through the last rites, which is really unsettling. Has the the history of that dynamic come out at this point? No, I... I, I, I think that 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 kind of all comes out at once immediately after this. Yeah. Okay. But but I mean by by all means push on because yeah we're we're pretty much there. And like Mitch said, he doesn't yes. dwell too much on the rather nasty demise of a poor old woman. So so basically, so you get to this point and it's revealed that the the Miss Brabazon character has been his childhood sweetheart. Is that fair, fair to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he and, said he jilted her thirty uh, years previous, so I think that's reasonable. And then he became he became a priest under the stranglehold of his mother. All these years, Brabazon has stayed on as the housekeeper, presumably being really horrible to the mother for all of that time. Yeah, um, I guess, or, but... or at least as long as she's not been the the matriarch with any kind of power and the final kind of dimension that's brought into Meldrum's character uh, as kind of the, of why he he is mad as as the note says <laughs> yeah i mean like because um you totally understand because i think i think that they sell him being kind of conflicted and his impulses being at odds with his beliefs and stuff like that that's really convincingly sold the whole way through but when you kind of get an explanation for that they, and because of the fact that he kind of got I think the word that they use is engineered, but kind of like coerced into the priesthood by his mother. Yeah. And like it resolves that in a way that adds an unbelievable and really unfor- like unpredictable layer of complexity onto that character. But it's done in a way that is like, it's so briefly done. It's dealt so like bluntly uh-huh. and it completely changes your perception of not just the characters but all of the relationships that you've seen unfold between those three in the film yeah and and and, and also the the whole thing of why he's become obsessed with valerie in the beginning and why then jenny uh, yeah yeah with jenny as well that they just reminded him of, of brabazon when she was younger i mean that's dark but it, do, it, it does go darker i didn't think it'd be possible but it does go darker 
as as the film kind of finds yeah. its end. Yeah, it does because they engage in um, I guess what you would call a, a suicide pact. Yeah, partially. Yeah, one. I was going to say one well, half yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, certainly, um, certainly going into it, that is the plan on yeah. on Brabazon's part, at least. Yeah, because she, she kind of resolves that that's kind of the only way that they can be ultimately together, which again is just like unbelievably bleak. <laughs> profoundly sad yeah that, i think that's it you know when you you basically find when you have all this context to these pretty much a, a parade of horrible characters it adds that level of human context i think it's it's really really interesting yeah i don't know if it necessarily i wouldn't go i don't know if i would go as far as to say that it changes your allegiances to characters but it makes you understand them in a way that i wasn't ready for oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's, the, you know he's, he's no more sympathetic but he's He's slightly more understandable, yeah. So then we jump to uh, Cutler bursting in, having found the body of Terry, bursting into the presbytery to find Brabazon with her throat slashed. Yeah, she's died off camera. And uh, we find that Father Meldrum is very much alive. The man deserves a slow clap here for very much wiggling his way out of this one. It's it's a masterclass in thinking on your feet. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. We should all be such accomplished liars. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, uh, yeah, he basically pins every bit of it on Brabazon. And yeah, I mean, th- those, those allegiances are clearly not that important to him <laughs> yeah not certainly when it comes down to that in his own self-interest yeah i think that the the closest comparator to this that there is before that is when he's confronted by valerie's mother and like i say he kind of immediately ladles on all this heavy-handed information and it's kind of regardless of what conflicts you see if when it comes down to it he will say anything to get himself out of a situation his main aim is literally to get away with it now and he <laughs> does with flying colors not only that he convinces Cutler to stay a priest. Yeah, that I don't know whether it's the anti-establishment bit in me, but that's that's one of the saddest bits for me. I completely <laughs> yeah, yeah. agree. Yeah, it's so yeah. frustrating to watch, isn't it? Because you're just like, oh no, this is just the worst. <laughs> because um, yeah, because because he talks about he's mentioned earlier that he was gonna ask Vanessa to, to marry him, to marry yeah. him, and all this stuff, and it's it's so horrible, but it's such a good moment where he basically is just like, well, if that was all, then you've got no reason to leave. Yeah. And I think that's when you realise what's about to happen. And you're like, oh, fuck, no. <laughs> yeah, this whole leading to the, the ending is just, it's a repeated punch in the gut, really, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I like the, bur- the burning of the resignation letter and all this stuff. Yeah, it's... yeah, it takes it, just drops it on the fire. And yeah, and just when you think it can't get any bleaker, he phones Jenny. Oh, God. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. And then uh, d- d- dons the cape and the black gloves, leaves, and we're out. That whole last bit is done so deliberately and so slowly as well that it's not even a big it's just it's a slow deliberate ending that makes you then just when it says the end it's like fuck yeah it's uh, like i it's um like i I, like i say i i think that about the last maybe 20 minutes of this is just absolutely sensational yeah but like it's absolutely excruciating as well (laughs) i would agree and like you say, Rob, the, those brief glimmers of hope, they are snuffed out at every single turn. Definitely. All these little moments that could bring down Father Meldrum, he just shoots them down and wiggles his way out. He's absolute Teflon. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it's it's so unrelenting in its lack of hope. That's that's one of the things I, I like so much about it, is, is that it's so grim, 70s, horrible 
with a complete lack of any hope of anything ever getting any better. <laughs> I I think it took us talking back through it for me to appreciate exactly how much of a relentless exercise in abject misery the film is. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it certainly goes all out in that respect, definitely. Yeah, which I, which I think is to be praised because it, it does it in a way that I think is just really really smart. And it's British, so it's immediately kind of tinged with sorrow. A quiet sadness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rob, this was a hell of a pick. A really interesting one. And like you say, one that I think that, I mean, some of the people that listen to the show, their knowledge is unbelievable. And some people will know this film. A lot of people won't. I really hope they take the time to check it out. I think this is an absolutely remarkable film. And I think that having spoken about it and understanding a little bit more about how bold it is in terms of what it has to say about religion and about the Catholic Church and things like that. It's kind of bold and really unflinching and really, really bleak. But I I, it was, I, I think it's a, it's kind of an exhilarating experience. I think especially the last quarter of an hour or so, it, it just it goes unbelievably dark in a way that feels really natural, was really unexpected. Yeah. Um, and, and it's clever. So smart. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I think it can only have been disappointing to to Pete Walker that it wasn't the controversial kind of uh, uproar that they clearly set out set it out to be. Yeah. Was it, yeah, was, yeah. It, was this underseen at the time? It's a tough one to to answer that. Really, I think I know that the previous because this was I think his third film that he did with David McGillivray, who wrote the script and. I think it was it was relatively well seen, but it just wasn't it wasn't particularly well reviewed, no, and I think no. it wasn't it didn't get the the sort of tabloid fury that they were hoping for because it really goes all out. Oh yeah, definitely. The target is very much in the crosshairs, and the the way they approach these films was to kind of pick a like a a, a topic, if you like, and go right. We're going to write a film about the hypocrisy of the catholic church and, and a murderous priest or you know in the in the case of frightmare it's like cannibalism in the you know in the home counties um, <laughs> yeah i mean i know certainly with house of whipcord which is the first one that they did mm-hmm. it made in like four weeks of release it made 48 grand which doesn't sound like a huge amount of money but the tickets were 35 pence that's a lot of money you know for a film like that to, and, and you know similar in in sort of exploitative sort of subject matter as, as this one is but it's kind of disappointing even now to think that it didn't get the fury that it that they set out to to, to try and bait you know i suppose now you know the 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 sort of bad things going on in the catholic church is, is being borne out even now with you know in, in all over the world you know but uh yeah not quite in this vein but <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah so i i've pretty loudly enthused about how much i like this andy this was a second watch for you but the first time in quite a long time yeah i, I haven't watched it i think it must have been about 15 years since i last watched it i went through a phase of watching pete walker films like like you say house of whipcord and schizo things like that and uh yeah obviously this fell right in there i loved it at the time it was never a film that i expected anyone to weirdly never a film i expected anyone to pick on the show and I remembered it being much, much, much darker because it is actually quite quirky and quite weird and quite funny at points. And again, I don't know if that maybe just comes from me getting a little older again, but yeah, I found it a lot more entertaining and I took a lot more away from it. I picked up on so much more 
even as bleak and as, as grim as it is in places, I think it's a it's a kind of slightly lighter watch than something like like Frightmare, which is probably my favourite of his films. To me, is is so grim and <laughs> grimy and horrible that 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 always because I remember that the uh, the viewing that I mentioned earlier about the first time I saw it and whether it was just the way that it was screened and the 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 whether if it if it was VHS or some other format. Um, that added to just how weird it, and kind of because it was it was the kind of film that you it fitted into that seventies grindhouse mold that yeah. that you were so used to seeing like American films uh, or like European stuff that, that ended up getting churned out on video. Well, this was a British film that looked that fitted that kind of mold. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, all of his films are great. Everyone should watch them all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely going to go back to Frightmare. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go dig that out. I think just because of the way you've been talking about it tonight. It's a really great Sheila Keith performance. The Brabazon character. Um, she's the lead in Frightmare. Oh, cool. Okay. She is incredible in that film. <laughs> I'll get after it though, uh, for sure. No, definitely. Um, Rob, before we wrap up, we definitely need to take a little bit of time to talk about Cyanide Screams because by the time this airs, it'll be less than a week away. Yes, yes indeed. 10th year, and it's the 18th to the 21st of this month at the Showroom Cinema. The lineup this year, absolutely fantastic. Unbelievable. Thank you very much. Well done, <laughs> sir. Well done. It's, it's taken a lot of doing, but we, we got there, and we really wanted to kind of push the boat out for, for the 10th one, and just do something do something a little bit different as well, you know, because with the best one in the world, you know, there's only the films that you have to, to pick from when you're programming something like this. There's only so many films doing the rounds you know yeah, um, yeah. but we we really kind of wanted to to dig in and do something because we did inside number nine last year as a, right, yeah, our, yeah. our first kind of in foray into into doing tv and then obviously we we're doing wellington paranormal this time mm-hmm so I know that we we touched on uh, the festival in some depth in a bonus sword a while ago, but do you want to just give people a kind of a flavour of what you've got on? Yeah, so we, we open with Mandy, uh, the Nicolas Cage meltdown-a-thon. I can't, I can't <laughs> wait to see that film. It's it's quite something. It's quite something. It's it's Halloween, obviously, the, um, which uh, there's, a, there's some short film on before it, I think. Uh, uh, it's a film that, uh, yeah, I, I suppose I have some small investment in. <laughs> So yeah, we 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 are very pleased to have mannequins. Yeah, um, uh, never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> Across the weekend, we've got everything from French kind of Jalo-esque thrillers through to the full entire six episode series of Wellington Paranormal, which is the offshoot of what we do in the shadows. Um, we have our secret film, which we do every year, which this year is at midnight on the Saturday, um, which is very, very good. And we're very happy with what we've got. Teasing bastards. And, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, all, uh, it's all, all there, really. Rob, this is only this is only my third year of going to Sagaloid. Um What I've thought, but I've, I've seen the lineups from previous years as well. And in my time going, um, I've seen a lot of things there that have turned out to be some of my favourite genre movies and some of my favourite movies of those years. Like things like Raw and um, uh, Trash Fire is one I've got a particular affection for, and things like that. Oh, cool! I think that I'm. A, I think that the the festival always does a really good job of feeling ahead of the curve and um, kind of pulling out just really smart, unusual selections. I'm sure this year will be no different. I can't wait, man. Oh, that, that means a great deal. Thank you. It is definitely something that from the very beginning I've always because I've kind of started this as a as a fan. Um, yeah. as well as a filmmaker myself. So I kind of went around the films that I made and was getting on the festival circuit with prior to starting Celebrity Screens. I kind of just 
cherry picked the the good the, all the good stuff that I experienced on, on the festival circuit from different events. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of programming, literally the the rule to this day is if I was sat in a cinema watching it, would I be satisfied that this was part of our lineup? Is the, is there a justification? Even if it's something that I didn't like, could I see the value in that film being part of whatever festival I was at? And I've been at festivals before where I've been sat there and thinking, why are we being subjected to this? Even? I've seen Not that even... so many yeah. times. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I've I've had that experience. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, and you can get carried away with it. You can totally get carried away with the idea of, oh, we have to try, you know, we, we're going to get this because of this. And it's, when it ceases to be about the audience and how the audience is going to respond to it, then I think that's where you drop the ball. Yeah. Um, I... So, you know, we're, we're always all about what are our audience going to make of this? And that's always the conversation throughout the process. Yeah. Well, I've known you for a while now, Rob, and I've always been very honest with you about your lineups. And I genuinely think that uh, Celluloid Screams is, for my money, one of the best festivals, and not just in the UK. I, I love Celluloid Screams, and I, I genuinely think every year your lineups get better and better. Oh, thank you very much. Checks in the post. Uh, Rob, thanks a lot for taking the time to do this, and we will see you very soon indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, um, and we look forward to uh, the live one. Oh fuck! Yeah, yeah um, yeah. C- can't let you go without saying a big thank you for uh, taking a punt on us for that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, it's, it's cool. It's it's something that we, you know, we we talked about, and it was just how we made it, how we fitted it, and how we made it work. So yeah, I'm really glad that we've we've been able to do it. And uh, well, do you know you, what? I'm, are you announcing who's going to be the guest? Um. Well, at this at the point that this is revealed, you you already know uh, who the guest is going to be. But I'm thinking we're going to release the film and then try to keep the guest a little bit more under wraps until the point, to, just to give people a chance to watch the film. That's a good plan. Rob, thank nice you very one. much for doing this. Thank you, man. Cheers. Thank you. That one kind of feels like a double win for me because one, I really love the film, and two, my celluloid screams anticipation level is now at an absolute fever pitch. <laughs> You're climbing the walls going into next week, man. Can't fucking wait. <laughs> I can't wait either. Yeah. No, it's going to be amazing. Um. Uh. Yeah, Celluloid Screams, of course, uh, the 18th to the 21st of this month at the Showroom Cinema in Sheffield. Weekend passes are sold out. Tickets are still available for individual films. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, the lineup's unbelievable. Um. Get over there, check it out. Loads and loads of good stuff. Uh, not least... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! You might have heard us mention this earlier in this episode. Yeah, <laughs> like, like like less than a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> Friday, nineteenth of October, Showroom Cinema, three p.m. It is me. It's Andy. It's a mystery guest. It's a film. It's Mitch's pitches. It's a live recording. It is. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully with an audience. Yeah. Well, also, and, uh, <clears throat> it's free. Free entry, of course. Uh, <clears throat> if that uh, <clears throat> sweetens the deal at all for anyone, we'll be giving away some free stuff to people who stand up and pose the juicy questions. Anything we might have missed, any anything that deserves an additional probing, any ridiculous comments that bear deeper exploration, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, courtesy of Arrow Video, we will have stuff to give away to um participating audience members. Yeah, so you know it's decent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> None of your shite. Um, but yeah big thank you to uh, director of Silent Screams Mr. Rob Nevitt joining us tonight yeah absolutely thank you Rob Uh, yeah to uh, talk House of Mortal Sin so we will be back Monday morning 8am BST with Mm -hmm. another mini-sode for your delectation 
Uh, all the usual stuff on there. Feedback, Shockwaves 100, Mitch's Pitches, all that stuff. Also, don't forget, if you want to get in touch with us between now and then, you can do. Facebook and Instagram, we are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC. And you can also email Scenes at gmail.com. And on the subject of the email address, uh, we do have some plans to uh, kind of grow the podcast a little bit in the future. Mm-hmm. Plans to kind of maybe get some more gear, uh, get a little bit more portable, get around, maybe go to guests a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, rather than the, the interminable riskiness of Skype. Yeah, maybe just try and take Skype out of the equation a little bit more. If you would like to uh, help us do that, uh, obviously the most immediate way to do that would be to keep on listening, keep on liking, comment, sharing, mm-hmm. rating, reviewing, yeah, and all sure. that stuff. Mm-hmm. If you're feeling generous and you'd like to throw a couple of quid our way um, to help cover hosting costs and maybe picking up some new gear, you can do that. There is a PayPal account linked to the email address. So that's scenes at gmail.com. Obviously, absolutely no obligation to do no, that. None whatsoever. Main um, episodes, minisodes will always be free. Yeah, and our big concern is just keeping people listening. So we would rather you did that. Yeah, over and above anything else, <laughs> go and just stick around because we do have some unbelievable guests and some unbelievable Holy films. Holy shit, out. yes, we do. Um, and there's plenty of places that you can listen in the meantime. Uh, you can get us at Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, of course, our home in Podbean. Podbean. And our most recent additions, Acast. And for those people with Alexa devices, you can listen to us on TuneIn. So we'll be back Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Good night. Good night. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.